0: It's Wednesday, March 20th. Welcome to Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argusinger, and from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer at the Motley Fool, Andy Cross. Good to see you guys. Fellas. Hey. Um, we're going to talk FedEx, Williams-Sonoma, and we're going to talk about Apple's ginormous <laughs> pile of cash. Uh, but let's start with FedEx. Third quarter profits for FedEx fell 31%. Shares down more than 5% this morning. And Matt, you and I were talking this morning... Uh, there are the companies that sort of beat by a penny, miss by a penny. This this was not missing by a penny. This was th- this was a substantial miss. This was a big one. It hit their you know their FedEx Express, which is about sixty percent
1: of their revenue uh, on an annual basis. It, you know they they talked about kind of their their international business, their Asia business. The express, the air freight was was down. You know, there's a lot of angles to the story. You know, if you wake up in the morning, usually uh, on most days in the market, and you see that you know FedEx is warning, you're you're expecting a pretty bad day in the in the stock market. And it's interesting that the stock market is actually is actually up kind of nicely today. It's kind of brushing off this FedEx news. And we have to remember that UPS, I think, at the end of January, also came out with kind of a warning about their results, and that also really didn't have an effect uh, on the market. And that's that's interesting, given that these two companies and FedEx are kind of uh, you know the economic bellwethers. And we look at them and say, well, if business, if their business is slowing down, that says a lot about, you know, commerce and international know, trade. Sure. And, yep. So I don't know. I just, it, it's funny. I mean, and if you dig in, I, I read the conference call just, just before the, we, we got here and their domestic business is actually doing quite well. Uh, yields are up. Volumes are up um, domestic ground and domestic freight. And so part of this to me is it's, it's, it's actually an international story as well. You know, are, are things in Asia or elsewhere slowing down a little bit. But, you know, business in the U.S. Is, is pretty strong. And and so, again, our stock market is up. Our economy is probably
0: outperforming. But wasn't part of the report this morning from FedEx that they're going to be cutting routes to Asia? Like, I, I think I have that right. That's right. And uh, so that being the case, what does that tell you? Does that tell you that, in fact, business is slowing down because for them it's no longer as profitable or as meaningful for them to... Increase their business in Asia.
1: No, oh, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think it was. It's, I think it's a lot. Also, a lot a, a consolidation move. They talked about the idea that they've got you know, they've got too many old planes right now. They need to try to you know reroute some of those and and consolidate some some lines in in their more profitable areas. But right, I, I think they're. I think they are seeing a slowdown and should be reacting to it.
2: Here's the beauty with with FedEx and and how I mean. You know, Fred Smith's run that business for so many years and so long. The economic cycles and tailwinds and headwinds that he's seen over the career, you know, of of that and the management team they have in place. The, the bet I'm betting that they that they can um, you know ride these winds out because of the experience they have, and that's one reason why, like Matt said, FedEx is that that bellwether of kind of economic activity, international trade, because um, they have such. Long arms in so many different areas, and they have just so much experience in that boardroom and in that management team that is just so. From an investing perspective, you're saying, ah, this case, you know, FedEx, a dip like this, kind of an interesting perspective to look at it from a from an investing um, take. If I'm looking to get started investing in FedEx,
0: well, and we've talked about businesses before that have, um, you know, substantial startup costs. I think when we were talking about Boeing, it's like, look. If you want to start a daily deal site, you can do that tomorrow. And part of the <laughs> yeah. reason people are bearish on Groupon is because there's there's no real defensible moat there. Whereas if you want to start an airline, good luck. Mm. FedEx is certainly in that same position where it's like, look, yeah. they're competing with UPS um, to a decreasing degree. They're competing with the U.S. Postal Service. But uh, to your point, Andy, it just sort of seems like long-term, it's it's hard to imagine substantial competition to this company. Yeah. And it also seems like one of those situations, um, you know, particularly given everything you said about Fred Smith, a lot of things are going to have to go wrong for yep. FedEx to go out of business.
2: Yeah. And it could also be the case, Matt, to, to, to Matt's take about t- today's market activity, um, being fairly positive, even in the face of this FedEx news is that. We all kind of have known the China story here has slowed down. So not that we're prognosticators over the course of a quarter, but really saying like, you know, we kind of knew China was not the most robust place it has been over the last five years. So, you know, great. their U.S. business doing pretty well. Good sign that U.S. business in general continues to do very well, and this news for FedEx is not necessarily indic- indicative of what's happening here in the U.S. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Matt, just to wrap up on FedEx, uh, even with the drop today, uh, shares of FedEx uh, beating the market over the past year ever so slightly, um, do you look at something like this and say, wow, this is this is a, a buying opportunity?
1: Right. I, I Kind of jumping off what Andy said, I, I just think such a well-run business, Fred Smith, you know, they they've shown in the past that they're very flexible in reacting to these kind of situations and and right you know this is kind of a duopoly i know we do have the us postal service that's still in there but you're you're betting on a and essentially a duopoly and and businesses like that are going to earn high high margins over time and have enormous competitive advantages it's it's yeah it's definitely one especially,
2: i'm watching yeah especially as they continue to tighten up their routes and get more and more focus on what works and what doesn't as mm-hmm. they always have been
0: shares of william sonoma up more than 9% this morning uh andy fourth quarter profits were up they increased their dividend this seems like one of those "what's not to love" situations. Well,
2: you know what's so funny is that it's also one of those stories that people are like, "Wait, what? williams Sonoma? Like, yeah. how high-end houseware goods? Who's buying that? Like, when's the last time one of us may have may have gone into William Sonoma? Although I did go into both the William Sonoma and Pottery Barn during the holiday season for research. I was just gonna say the holidays. Yeah, yeah for the just holidays, for right? for just for research purposes. But just for research, I did not actually buy anything there. But I did like what they what they're um, doing. Listen, what they Laura Alber, who runs this and has, has been at Williams Cinema for, for, I guess, almost 20 years now and been CEO since 2010, has just done an amazing job really here. And it's a great healthy combination between offline retail, bricks and mortar, and online retail. They're online retail business continues to grow. It's up 15 to 20%, depending on how how you measure it in the direct to consumer business, which is really where the high margins can be. They continue to get their store footprint right. They're growing their comparable sales business up. Their expectations continue to be for strong growth. And the most important thing for Williams-Sonoma is they're offering products that are relatively unique. You can only find them at Williams-Sonoma. You can only get them there. So whether you're searching online for a Williams-Sonoma Sonoma brand or a Pottery Barn brand, Pottery Barn is actually their largest brand and their biggest their biggest unit, um, you can only find those at those stores. So it is somewhat uh, defensible from from the Amazon effect, which we all look at when we look at retailers today. And what they're doing is just really, it's very good. And the stock is, like you said, Chris is reacting today to the news. It's nice to see a dividend increase and a lot of cash they're going to put back to work for shareholders. Uh,
0: I look at Williams-Sonoma, and I know that the Pottery Barn segment is doing better for them, Um but in a way, that's surprising to me for a couple of reasons. One is, just as a consumer, I've always looked at Pottery Barn stuff as very nice stuff, but too expensive. Yeah. Um uh, But uh, I also look at Pottery Barn as having more competition. I, there are more options, you know, Ikea, whatever. Yeah. Um Whereas Williams-Sonoma, I just look at that and I, I can't think of a direct competitor in terms of kitchen, kitchen supplies, uh, higher-end, high-quality yep. stuff that you are going to get for your kitchen. I don't really see any Serious competitive threat out there,
2: yeah, and what they're doing um from that perspective to deepen that competitive threat, I think is really is very interesting, like i mentioned they're they're they are improving their relationship with their consumers through um relationships emails um they have their catalogs they've actually you know spent some time bringing that catalog footprint down as they expand their kind of online business um that's helped their gross margins, their gross margins were actually flat this quarter and slightly improvement sequentially. And why that's important is because it shows you that they're not discounting. They're not going through massive discounting to push right. inventory out during the holiday season. That's really important from a retail perspective, especially for a high end retailer that says, that sells pricier goods for the value that you get. So the consumers are very loyal. They like their Williams Sonoma and their pottery barring, um, products and they're going to pay up for those, um, regardless of the brand that you're in. And they have pottery brand teen, Pottery brand, pottery barn, um, uh, team I mentioned before, um, they have their West Elm brand, which is a really growing, uh, housewares brand for, um, tend to be for a younger demographic. They're pushing more and more into the college dorm space. So all this area, what they're doing, trying to get their, um, their international footprints also growing very nicely. So they're really trying to expand their reach outside of their, their core audience without, you know, leaving that core audience kind of, you know, to the side, too. So they're doubling down the core, and they're also expanding their market. And that's a good sign.
1: Sure. And I I just, we were, I think, on the show a few weeks ago, when we were talking about, um, you know, online sales. And as Andy mentioned, you know, their, their direct-to-consumer business, I mean, their their net revenues in their e-commerce segment were up 24% uh, this year. And, you know, if you strip out the extra week that we had in sales, it, they were still up almost 16%. And I just think that's such a strong reflection about how people feel about Potty Barn and Williams-Sonoma, if that's translating directly to online sales. So, Definitely something to watch out for. They're do- they're obviously hitting on all cylinders, right? Yeah, there. and
2: and Chris, the last thing I'll say is they, they really use that retail. They they aim to use that retail footprint as a marketing platform and an advertising platform for their online business. So they think it's a very healthy combination that not a lot of cut co- not a lot of retailers have. You know, your Amazon maybe or your Costco, but in between at the high end, really, William Sonoma, the company, really has has really thrived in that space. Yeah, we're
1: so used to all these businesses being sort of advertising platforms for Amazon, but it certainly doesn't seem that way for Williams-Sonoma. And That's Bonnie right. No.
0: Uh, shares hitting a new 52-week high. What do you think of the stock? Uh, is it pricey? Is it
2: well, fairly valued? Well, certainly the, the the valuation has stretched with Williams-Sonoma this year as they've, they've continued to excel. It dropped down in the summer, and it's really had a very nice run here too. Um, one thing I am watching is their inventories are steadily growing, so we have to watch their inventories and how they – how that inventory turns into cash so that's one thing i'm watching i don't think the shares are outrageously expensive um, to a case where i would you know take my profits and run here because we're not doing that um i still like the stock very much here i think their global footprint like i said when i look at the entire space and where laura is pushing into those um that space and how she is delivering back to shareholders that cash through dividends and share purchases i think the stock does have upside from here but certainly not as much as it as it did earlier this this year.
0: You can follow us on Twitter, at MarketFoolery is our Twitter handle. Um, got a tweet from Chris Weinert in Illinois uh, regarding our story the other day on Iron Maiden and the, the new Iron Maiden ale that's going to be produced in the UK. He wrote, Rockstar Microbrew? Sammy Hagar did it right with his Cabo Wabo Tequila, number two tequila in the US, second only to Jose Cuervo. I had no idea about this story. I actually did, went back and forth uh, with Chris on Twitter a little bit, and he sent me a story. Do you guys have any idea that Sammy Hagar is not just a, a multimillionaire, but he's a tequila multimillionaire? No clue.
2: Um, I actually did know that there was a story about that when it when it when it came out when he was starting his whole tequila brand and and kind of had to leverage. You know that it is very interesting to see kind of the association with some you know famous people and. Alcohol brands.
0: And he ended up selling, he's, st- uh, he's still sort of the front man, but he ended up selling the company for somewhere in the neighborhood of $95 million. So.
1: Well, you know, we, so many good celebrities good. seem to be getting into the wine business. You know, every, you know Francis Coppola, you always see the, the, them starting vineyards, but hey, I mean, they should get into liquor. It's obviously a little more profitable.
2: Uh, yeah, I would say a liquor business is much more profitable <laughs> than, than the uh, wine business.
0: It was a year ago this week that Apple announced it would begin paying a dividend. On Monday, Moody, uh, Moody's Investor Service put out a report saying that Apple's cash, which as we've talked about guys, is in the neighborhood of 137-140 billion. According to Moody's report, uh, Apple's cash could hit 170 billion by the end of the year if they do not increase the dividend or their buyback program. It's sort of a good problem to have, I suppose. Like, what am I going to do with all my billions of dollars? Um, Sleep on it. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to sleep on an ever increasing pile of money. Um, But this is this is actually starting to become a problem for Apple when you have David Einhorn out there agitating for what they like. What should they do with this? Because the easy thing to do would just be to up the dividend. That seems like the easiest. The lowest hanging fruit to pick from the tree, but my hunch is they're not going to do that. Or at least they're not going to, like, just do that. I don't know. What do you think, man? Well, I, what, what was the, uh, you had some great stats, Andy, before the show. Well,
2: so, so, uh, yeah, $170 billion of, of, of cash, if Moody's is right, and certainly, you know, the amount of cash that, that Apple, generates is it 's not unlikely to happen um, but there are only uh twenty some companies that have in the world that have a, a market market capitalization greater than one hundred and seventy billion obviously Apple is one of them and there's only <laughs> there's only fifty that have more than a hundred billion so this this problem you know is growing and it's just so funny because I would looked at they generate more than thirty Apple generates more than thirty billion free cash flow a year so like you know one forty plus thirty two right. the one seventy right somewhere in that neighborhood um Cyprus's GDP. Cyprus, all in the news. Cyprus's <laughs> GDP is twenty-four billion.
1: We got. We got to keep
0: bringing Cyprus in into the mix, as we right? Can, so, right? I mean, the challenge they buy have. Buy Cyprus. They should. Apple should just buy Cyprus. Got, <laughs> right, yeah. Buy. Cyprus's
2: GDP fell more than two percent last year. I don't think Apple wants to <laughs> touch that. Um, uh, the challenge that Apple has with all this cash. Great cash. It looks beautiful. Like everyone loves cash, except the returns on that capital are so low right now that when they think about their growing. Uh, returns, growing returns on equity, returns on capital and for it shareholders. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, and 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 we've seen kind of the struggles they've had a little bit with their products. So now they need capital to invest into their innovation and into their into their business to grow and and bring us all the products that we love. So they certainly need some capital, and a good chunk of that capital, as we've talked about, is overseas and hard to bring back and and use in 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 a way like a like a dividend or in in other ways. So. There's there's a little bit of of that challenge too, but the bigger worry for investors, I think, that I, that I have when I look at Apple is the returns on that that cash are so low um, that it's hard to put to if they can't really figure out better places to put it, it's just going to sit there and the returns on capital of the overall business are going to shrink.
1: Right, right, and I'm surprised we haven't heard anything you know sooner. I mean, especially a few weeks ago when they had their their annual shareholder meeting. Right, they're earning they're earning very low returns on this cash, and but we know the returns they can get from their iPhone business, from their iPad business. I mean, if you just take the core business itself, I mean, this is a company that can do ROE and, you know, returns on invested capital in the 20%, yeah. north of 20% range. And so the best investment they can make is in themselves. So I would say, but they don't need all that cash. So a buyback for me is the way to go. I, th- I think even if, you know, even if they're worried about re- sort of repatriating that cash and paying a, a heavy tax rate, they could borrow money right. at a very low rate at, you know, probably them 2%, given how some of the triple-A companies or double-A companies are, are borrowing these days, and just buy back loads of stock. I mean, that, that would
0: be, to me, a great solution. Yeah. We we talk about a company like Google and the way Google generates cash, and when they work on things like Google Glasses or Google Shoes or whatever, they're small bets. They are small bets for Google because Google makes so much cash. Does it make sense for Apple, and obviously Apple has their own innovations that they are working on. Uh, We talked the other day, I think it was yesterday, about Samsung working on a watch. And Apple's never confirmed it, but uh, they're rumored to be working on a watch. At some point, does it make sense for Apple to essentially set up their own VC firm of sorts and just start looking at taking a couple of billion and just saying, we're going to place a lot of small bets as quickly as possible, just by starting to fund people.
2: Yeah, I think the only challenge with that, Chris, and and, and there are companies that do this, Intel as its an Intel business and Google as its business, and, and they, they actually start these funds and invest in, in other companies. Apple is their control freaks there, and they just want to control everything, (laughs) right? right? And that's been the whole story since Steve Jobs started Apple and since he came back, and they're just total control freaks. And I think that's one of the things investors see, Matt, when they're like, listen, let's do something with this capital. It's not earning anything. Pay it back to me. They're kind of like, hey, it's ours. Like, you know, we're going to – the company's earned it. We're going to put it to use. We're going to hold on to it until we actually invest it. So we're going to keep it and we're going to do something with it that's bigger and grander than what you can do is if you pay it back to shareholders or pay it in a dividend. So I think that is some of the reasons and one of the reasons why Apple's um, stock sells at such a cheap earnings multiple is because investors don't know what they're going to do with all this capital and can they put it in in ways – Put it to work in ways they're going to return excess of twenty five, thirty percent that they um, that they t- typically have invested that money into.
1: Yeah, we talk about the, the sort of the forest before the tree uh, metaphor a lot. You know, you have companies like Berkshire Hathaway who are happy. Buff- Buffett is happy building a forest of all these sort of yeah. you know yeah. autonomous little trees, where Apple's building this humongous redwood tree that yeah. probably can't grow anymore, and eventually it might even collapse on itself. But you're right. I think Andy, that's a great point. They, they're just the control is is just is, they they're, they wouldn't they're not going to slap Apple on anything, right? That isn't you know fully vetted to the, to the nth degree and it's a an, you know 100% awesome product. Yep. And so it's that that's a cultural thing right yep. there.
0: Yeah. Andy Cross, Matt Argensinger, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, gents. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Fuller. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.